You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 391, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Justin Searles helped start Test Double, a software agency of experienced developers who work with clients to build great software together as a team. Justin has a useless superpower. He personally encounters every software bug and every app he uses. As a result, he cares an awful lot about designing more scalable systems, better wrangling legacy code, and writing tests people won't hate maintaining. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Justin. Hey, thanks for having me, Brittany. I'm really excited to be here. I am super excited to hear what you have to say today. And of course, Justin, what is your developer origin story? Well, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about, especially for people like me who, who care a lot about like code quality, about like the right way and wrong way to do things. And my developer origin story, or at least a piece of it I can share, is that I, I sort of did the right way and the wrong way, like simultaneously <laughs> uh, when I was coming up. Uh, so so I, I didn't program much in high school and I, I went to college uh, and I pursued a, a computer science bachelor's degree. So four year program. And, you know, I did the coursework and I showed up and I listened to the lectures and I I was indeed taught somewhat successfully, like a lot of theory, but I didn't have enough practical ability. Heck, I didn't even have like enough. All all the systems were Unix and whatnot. And I just didn't know that. So like even like just computer skill to like really get a lot out of it. Um, And that was, you know probably two parts dispiriting and one part useful. Um, but then coincident with that, I had like, you know, just sort of like a freshman onboarding class uh, where the uh, uh, director of the IT department of the school uh, would just teach you how to use Excel and stuff. And uh, he and I really hit it off uh, and he, he invited me to go work for 10 bucks an hour in the in the college library just kind of building skunk works, like one-off applications that like they needed. And so I spent the better part of uh, my freshman uh, summer and then sophomore and junior years, just working for peanuts, building um, kind of silly PHP three apps where I just kind of throw together JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and like, you know, build relatively complicated um, uh, uh, applications that were just a complete mess. They're poorly factored. Of course, like, you know, they were like, the exact opposite of what I would have been learning in my computer science program, but which like helped me get traction and actually proving to myself like I can make useful things with code. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it hadn't been for that experience, I probably would have fallen off the wagon. Um, so, you know, when I look back, you know, it was the fact that I was graduating in a computer science degree that like got me my um, opportunities, uh, job offers and stuff as I was graduating. But like really at the end of the day, and I, I know people say this kind of thing a lot, the actual art of uh, showing up and programming and pushing through the hard bits uh, was uh, what was actually useful on day one uh, of, of my professional career. So what brought you to Ruby? Well, sort of similarly, you know, the the quote unquote, like right and proper way back then was uh, to pick like kind of a heavy duty uh, language that had like lots of industry support. And so like, I, I spent a lot of time doing a lot of Java, um, uh, uh, through college and the early part of my career. But, but again, simultaneously, you know, for the side of me that wanted to have fun with computers, uh, I, I got sucked into agile and extreme programming and, and Ruby, um, just as Ruby on rails was initially getting developed in like 2004 and 2005. And uh, we started uh, a small group in, in, in Grand Rapids, like kind of the original like Ruby user group over there. Uh, and the the energy and the excitement of, of, of everyone just kind of figuring out how to how to how to how to how to answer any of these questions like dependency management um, at all 
Whereas, you know, if you wanted to answer the same question in Java, there was like a correct answer and it was like a 400 page book or like required a big, you know, enterprise license to some application server or something. Uh, and and so I, I toyed around with Ruby and I, I played around with it, but I, I decided at some point that my career would be better off if I actually got the big, nasty two year, two million dollar project experience at, at the enterprises. Uh, so that I could use that as a backstop to understand, like, what is special about something that's a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more humane, a little bit more um, flexible, um, especially when you spend so much of your time feeling really constrained at work. Uh, and, uh, you know, having both of those experiences, I think, has deepened my appreciation for the for the freedom that I feel uh, when when I get to just write something creative in Ruby. I hear you. Exactly. So with the company named Test Double, why is testing so important to you? Well, you know, I get in trouble with the name a little bit because uh, a lot of people think that we might be a QA company. In fact, we get like a non-zero number of leads every year of, of people thinking that, that that's what we do. We just do, uh, you know, testing automation. But in truth, like just naming a company is like really hard, <laughs> you know, finding a term from computing that sounds like a positive thing to an outsider, like, you know, somebody who doesn't know what a test double is. Uh, would just think, oh, well, they, they test two times. That seems good. And so like finding a word like that that wasn't used was was really hard. And it's like a bit snarky because like the actual meaning of the word test double is like a stunt double for your test. So it means like a fake or phony thing uh, that stands in for a real thing. And so that always made me chuckle. But, you know, the the reason that heck, I even knew what that term meant was because I was fascinated with testing personally um, and the reason I think is that it's just an evergreen problem and all of our um, frustrations with testing are sort of our, our of our own creation, like because ostensibly any amount of automated testing should be an improvement over no testing. Uh, it's like an unqualified effort just to make software better. Um, but, you know, in once testing became popularized and it sort of became a given that like thou shalt write tests when you write production code. We never really saw it deliver on this promise of like bug free code and confident, predictable delivery of software. And, you know, the vast majority of test suites that I come across, they're just more trouble than they're worth. They take a lot of time to write. They're slow to run. You know, they can often choke out an entire team's ability to change a system because they're kind of at the mercy of a big, complicated build. And as a result, like, you know, what I found is that there's just a ton of potential in helping people make even marginal improvements to their relationship with testing. Like, the literal improvement, like, you know, if you cut down an eight minute test suite to four minutes, you could be saving hours per day for however many developers are involved, which is just a massive improvement. And and also, like, more importantly, figuratively, like understanding why you're doing what you're doing, especially when it comes to writing tests, because it has such a big impact on how you design your code. You can't really help but end up being a far better programmer overall. Uh, and and so I think it's an excellent foil to approach um, helping new teams uh, or teams that are new to you, like solve the immediate urgent problem of like, you know, they don't like their tests, but but with the kind of on the back end, help them actually prevent those that entire category of problems down the road uh, by, by just talking about why do we do what we do? Well, that sets the stage perfectly. And by the time this episode has aired, you will have already given your talk at RubyConf. But I feel incredibly lucky today because I'm getting a scoop on your soon to be announced gem mocktail. Please tell me all about it. Yeah. So so uh, breaking news, Chiron, uh, uh, we during my talk, uh, if, if all goes according to plan, I will uh, have announced 
a brand new gem that I made called Mocktail. Uh, it is uh, <laughs> uh, funny that we're just talking about our name. It is a test double library, um, which, you know, are most often referred to as mocking libraries. Uh, and what it, you know, I guess if you zoomed out and you were to try to compare it just at a glance of like, why write a new one in, in this year, 2021, uh, when there's so many other testing tools available for Ruby, my impression was and always has been that like most mocking libraries are designed to enable the testing of hard to test code. You know, you have something that's like difficult to instantiate or you, the, the, the interaction between these two bits is so complicated that like the setup is really hard. And so if you could just like poke a hole between these two things, like using a mocking library, uh, then then you could uh, successfully say that it was tested uh, and, and that test might be useful and or it might be kind of fantastical and, and not particularly like valuable. Um, but at the end of the day, the way that these APIs are designed is normally to like maximize the kind of surface area of just how much, you know, uh, fiddling around with semi real things you can do in order to facilitate tests of 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 things that are hard to test. And my theory of the case had always been that like hard to test code is hard to use code. And if it's hard to test something, that should be feedback that your design's not very good. Uh, and and so to reframe the problem entirely, um, libraries with an API design like Mocktail has, and I trace it all the way back to um, the uh, Java library named Mojito, like Mojito, but with Mock in the title, a lot of like alcohol adjacent uh, library names. Mojito was uh, written by somebody who hadn't really used any other mocking libraries and didn't know the backstory. And so he was ignorant of like a lot of this kind of baggage. And what what he did was he just made it like sort of enable, uh, you know, the writing of easy to use code through an API that created like a little workflow that was like, you know, you just let the API help you define each new class and each new method and get really good feedback messages about like, hey, you should be setting your parameters to this. And it turns programming into sort of like a paint by numbers. Um, and, and I always loved that experience. And I tried to, you know, because it's a Java library, I tried to actually, um, gosh, almost 10 years ago, uh, implement that in, in Ruby with another library named Gimme. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Honey Badger is exception, uptime, and cron monitoring all in one place and easily installed in your web app. Deploy with confidence and be your team's DevOps hero. For me, I'm often the first person on the engineering team reading the bug reports that customer support submits. My first step is always to tab over to Honey Badger, find the error, identify the culprit, and sign the bug to a developer. Honey Badger has made us so much more confident in shipping new features. If you're not reading their blog, you absolutely have to. They have tons of Ruby-specific content, but I love how they cater content to each stack they support. And if you're like me, you've been eagerly watching the updates on their new product, Hook Relay, so you can have webhooks as awesome as Stripes. To dive into all of this, head on over to honeybadger.io. Yeah, so tell me the story behind Gimme, because you started to tell me in the pre-show, and I think it would be a really fun story to share with the listeners. Yeah, so so Gimme was, um, you know, I started it in 2010, and I knew Ruby, but I, I didn't know how to, like, write open source well <laughs> or like you know i didn't i didn't foresee all of the problems that could result by like not thinking ahead a little bit and so 
Gimme was a library that re-implemented a, um, a pattern or a workflow for a mocking library that I learned from Mokito. And if you're, if you're really familiar with mocking, like one way to put it is that it, um, mocking libraries like the ones that I, I promote are um, help you set up like your test setup goes on top. And then your, uh, uh, you know, we call that your arrange step or your given step. And then you have like one line in the middle where you invoke the thing that you're testing. And we call that the act step or like the arrange, uh, uh, excuse me, not the act, uh, (laughs) rewind. We call that the act step or um, like uh, uh, the win step in a given when then model. And then the third step of your test is like, you know, uh, where you where you where you verify that things are working. And we call that the assert phase or or the then statement in a given when then uh, uh, frame. But most mocking libraries like don't really facilitate uh, arrange, act, assert patterns in tests. And so they can kind of put the cart before the horse and like you end up like, you know, uh, verifying things before you call the thing and then. It's really difficult to describe APIs uh, on a radio show. So uh, uh, Gimme was a way to follow that pattern, which had been called a spy pattern. Uh, and no other Ruby gems really did this. Um, and at the time, I was kind of excited by just being able to work on Ruby after hours and on weekends uh, uh, by myself. And, and you know, kind of I used it to play around. And so I was playing around with different things like um, metaprogramming, which I hadn't really done pr- in production uh, I, at that point. I was playing around with uh, uh, Jim Wyrick's uh, blank slate pattern, which is like a way to kind of cleanse Ruby objects of anything that's built in to kind of be truly just empty uh, husks. And so I was using that um, pattern, which kind of got me in trouble later. And then I was also doing um, uh, uh, using Cucumber for all of the tests, sort of like thinking like, uh, a behavior driven development, like executable requirements, like this way, like the documentation could just be little here docs that explain like, this is how you use the code and this is how it works. But, um, in truth, what that ended up doing was it made it so that like, I didn't have unit tests that provided like healthy design pressures and like the code itself that actually implemented giving was really, really naughty and thorny and overly complicated. Uh, so it was like difficult for me to, you know, improve it or or add features to it because I didn't have a, a, a good test harness because the design was just not sound. Um, and so so I, I was still excited about Gimme, though, like I, I knew that like I had something there and I took it to uh, a conference in Ohio called Code Mash, where I met Jim Wyrick, who was like my Ruby hero. You know, Jim, he'd written um, Rake. He was a core contributor to like Ruby Gems. Um, taught a lot of the kind of first generation of Rubyus, a lot about programming. And I showed him this pattern and he immediately took to it and he was like, this is better. Um, and, uh, you know, some time passed and he committed a few things to the repo. And then like later that day, I saw that he like subtweeted, <laughs> uh, like how, how, like it was something like sigh, I'll oh, share the link in the show notes. Like it was like sigh, like it's disappointing when you know, somebody uses cucumber for unit tests instead of something else. And I was like, "Uh oh, he's talking about me. And then I like immediately go and tab over and realize like he got frustrated with my thing and kind of just gave up and then went and took his own mocking tool, FlexMock, and just like added that kind of API pattern to it, which like on one hand, I was like, you know, tickled that I would had any impact on him at all. But on the other hand, just like completely devastated and gutted that I'd screwed up. My reaction to that heartbreak of getting that kind of really negative roundabout feedback was to step away for 10 years <laughs> and just like never revisit the problem. Uh, and so I kind of you know, stopped maintaining Gimme. 
and it wasn't Jim's fault or anything, but like, you know, I, I, I never really found a place where I was satisfied with any of the mocking libraries available in Ruby. And so even to this day, I sort of um, kind of use Gimme here and there. And, and I, I, I practice TDD up to a point. But really, at the end of the day, like I'm just kind of creating the objects that I would have been making had I been practicing TDD because I kind of know what, you know, the shape of things uh, is usually going to look like. And so I'll just kind of go ahead and, and code stuff. And I was never really happy with that, especially because um, now that our company has grown so much and a lot of people who are younger are like brand new to test driven development and they're trying to understand, like, what are some good patterns, practices and tools? Um, A good mocking library with a smart API can, at least it did for me, really help me understand how to test better. Uh, And so that's how I came to spend, uh, you know, a a few weekends uh, over the summer uh, writing this thing. Yeah. So what is it about Mocktail that's different? And can I drop using, you know, mini test mocks, Mocha and RSpecs mocks for it? The answer to the first question of how is it different is that this is a highly opinionated library that is designed for really one activity, and that is test-driven development of new code that is easy to instantiate, easy to invoke, and then easy to um, assert. Um, because like, you know, at the end of the day, if you're writing a bunch of classes with really good names, with pretty simple parameter lists, uh, that either return a value or have a very apparent side effect, like that's kind of all you need, right? Like in, in, in the toolbox, like you can, you can just write code like that forever, uh, and never get any fancier and never like, you know, apply very, you know, um, arcane, uh, object oriented programming patterns and stuff. And, 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 go pretty far uh, with, with with just basic tools. And so while uh, the library is is really focused on just that one activity, like how do I get you the absolute best message? For example, um, if you say, hey, uh, uh, Mocktail stubs uh, this call to this fake thing with these parameters uh, and maybe this keyword argument and maybe this block, then uh, stubs that with uh, this result. What it'll do is it'll actually like until you define that method, it'll print out like here's a method definition that would match the parameter list that you just specified or that arg list. Uh, and you can just copy paste that method definition right into your source and you're off to the races. And so you're actually def- using the test to define the collaborators of the thing that is under test as you go to just kind of speed things along. Um, that, those are the kinds of things that I'm focused on when I'm thinking about like what to add to Mocktail. It's all about like, how do I help you be more productive when you're using tests to, to design easy to use code? Um, and as a result, to answer your second question, like, is this a drop in replacement for other stuff? The answer is like, it depends on how you use mocking libraries, because at the end of the day, um, and I gave a talk, uh, called please don't mock me, at uh, JSConf a few years ago. It is unusual for me to run into somebody who's using a mocking library in a way that I think is like on net productive. Um, Most of the time, it's a pretty realistic test of pretty realistic things. And it's trying to assert confidence that like the system is working. Um, And the best version of that test doesn't have any amount of faking in it at all. Uh, But when you're using a mocking library to facilitate like the writing of new code that has like a kind of good, clean, easy to use design, uh, then absolutely. I think, I think that what you'll find in Mocktail is it actually is super expressive. The, the, the error and the messages that it kind of produces along the way 
are not going to fight you in the way that mini test mocks or RR or, or Mocha might or, or RSpec mocks, which is far and away the most commonly used one. And even if you think you like those things, which I know that most Rubyists probably, if you use any of these, you probably do like the thing that you're using. I, w- I would ask you just to give it a shot um, and and try it out this way uh, for, for a few days, because I think you'd find that like the um, the entire flow to the API is meant to support a workflow that gets you thinking the right things in the right order. And it's difficult to know you need that until you've experienced it. So I'm going to come at you from a different direction. I spent five years on a Rails app that heavily used VCR cassettes. And I'm going to take a guess that you probably have an opinion about that. Why would I drop the cassette tapes and pick up Mocktail? Yeah, um, I do have an opinion on that, but that's a safe guess for just about any topic uh, ever. Uh, I form opinions very, very quickly and sometimes brashly. And so I, I, I say this with the caveat that I have never used VCR in anger um, for something that I was intending to do. I've sort of just had VCR inflicted upon me <laughs> at various points. Uh, now, if anyone doesn't know, VCR is a tool that will record. Um, uh, is it only network activity or is it like network activity or file IO or just any serialized inputs and outputs of any Ruby code? Yeah, you can you can adjust it to capture anything that you want. OK, so you run you run a bit of code. Let's say you call some network API, HTTP API over a network, mm-hmm. and you set up VCR to record it. Uh, it will record in a very convoluted generated file that is like very difficult to understand uh, a, a file called a cassette. And that cassette then can be, and there's all sorts of different rules for this, uh, can be replayed with, you know, later on. Like maybe you have a whole bunch of tests that call a whole bunch of network stuff and you want to be able to run your tests uh, in airplane mode. Uh, it could, you know, potentially be configured to record by default, but then like playback when the network drops or something like that. Or you just like record once and then just forever, uh, you know, you're, you're running that uh, test suite against sort of, you know, that API's response as of some date, an increasingly lar- long number of dates ago. Um, and ultimately, like my, my, my perspective on this is that like it solves a fundamentally different problem than a mocking library that is intended to like fake out individual units of code because Something like Mocktail, I would very much focus on uh, uh, at the periphery of your application when you're calling something that's writing to files or you're calling something to have like an HTTP API. I would probably, you know, like let's say you had an object that was called like the uh, I don't know, you have a user service, a a user fetcher or something. Um, Anything that like depended on the user fetcher, if I was practicing TDD with a mocking library, I would just like mock out that user fetcher uh, and like, I don't know, stub it with giving me some users, presumably. Um, and and when it came to actually testing the user fetcher itself at that point, like I would want to hit the real thing and like make sure that it worked. And I would probably just set it up in a separate suite that like only ran, I don't know, sometimes or when I knew that I was online. Um, and, and so VCR kind of like solves a different problem. But like the way that I see it used in practice is often abused much in the same way, which is like, I've got this really naughty, thorny code that like, you know, invokes 800 HTTP services and rather than like understand and organize and and like factor the code base in a way that I can comprehend all this stuff. Let's just record everything and then play it back. uh, And and when the tests run, if they pass, great. If they don't pass, let's just re-record it and pray for the best, which, you know, my saying has always been like, 
if 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 you have a generated file and you commit it to source control and you either like and you don't understand how it works unless you can regenerate it and have it work right away like you're in trouble uh and so so having these big cassette files that like when something breaks the solution is just like run it again and uh or or just to try to tweak and understand it it's really dangerous and it usually leads to tests that don't really give you any sort of real confidence yeah that's great advice so let's talk about the internals of mocktail how big is the gem and how much, you know, open source maintenance are you now committing to? That's a great question. Um, and I, it's a question that um, my business partner and CEO, Todd, and my wife and uh, uh, my friends like would all probably wish that I would ask before I squirrel away for weekends and then like emit a new open source library. Uh, but I often don't think about these things. Uh, and And what I've learned is that my uh, creative impulse for wanting so badly for like, you know, in this case, a, a gem that was uh, really excellent at helping people uh, establish a great workflow with test driven development um, that I'm just going to do that either way. And the best thing that I can do as somebody who writes a lot of gems is to uh, limit the blast radius of the uh, uh, maintenance burden. So, you know, I do a handful of things like one for one example, like I try to write my APIs to be um, pretty narrow, uh, small, uh, uh, pure functions wherever possible that like define like regular old Ruby objects as as values. I, I use struct a lot and I limit configurability like I love having tons of options, but if those options kind of like toggle a different mode for the gem to operate in, then you have to be thinking about like, well, you know, I need an example app for every single possible permutation of optional modes that this gem can run in, and that can make testing really difficult. Um, another thing that I tend to do to make it easier to maintain things long term is I'm very cautious about pull requests that add functionality that I myself don't depend on. So if somebody is going to come and, and offer up like a, a major new feature for, for a library, I have a pretty honest conversation with them about like, are you willing to commit to maintaining this kind of corner of the code base over the long term? Because if you're not, then I'm ultimately going to be accountable for that. And, uh, you know, if that happens too much, um, I had I had a gem about a decade ago called Jasmine Rails that got like a lot of attention, but it also did too many things or attracted way too many pull requests uh, from way too many people. And by the time I ultimately kind of gave up on maintaining it in 2015 or 2016, I didn't even know how it worked anymore. Right. I was just kind of fighting all these fires to preserve all these options that I never actually used. Um, and so so I think that I'm pretty much just at this point where I'm very comfortable if my gem does one thing really well and it follows a single kind of opinionated golden path. Um, and so long as I use it and I find it productive, if I can just do a really good job of selling why it is the way it is, uh, 80% of people, and they're usually the people that like don't open <laughs> GitHub issues or, or, or pull requests wanting new features will actually be better served by that than um, a, handing them a Swiss army knife with, you know, a readme of 800 different options. Uh, and so I've, I've become more comfortable just kind of like writing the thing to work and then be done with it and just let it settle. I really like the minimalist approach. So listeners, by the time this episode's out, you know, Mocktail will be out there. So please install it, try it, give Justin feedback, but maybe not, you know, incredibly large feature pull requests. Yeah, let's start with an issue and a conversation first, maybe. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout is an industry leader in application performance monitoring. This low overhead tool is designed to help Ruby developers quickly find and fix performance issues, 
without having to deal with the headache of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a super intuitive UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to specific lines of code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails notify you when there's a problem so you can fix it before it reaches your customers. With unlimited seats and applications, Scout's transaction-based pricing model makes it easy for any developer to become a performance pro. See for yourself why software engineers worldwide call Scout their best friend with a free 14-day trial, no credit card needed. As a special offer for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. So before we start to wrap, you are one of the most dynamic and entertaining speakers in the Ruby on Rails community. So I have to ask, especially for the listeners who haven't gone out there and started to do talks, how do you do it? I think over the course of my career, I have really sought to understand the things about myself that by default are are counterproductive or maladaptive behaviors. For example, I take feedback very, very poorly. Um, I also uh, struggle to, uh, you know, like uh, feeling really anxious um, before uh, uh, conference calls, which is like a really unfortunate thing for a person who's ostensibly in software sales. Um, (laughs) uh, I I, 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 I tend to like, you know, uh, ideate and ruminate about conversations after they've happened. And I just can be kind of like a high stress, uh, negative thinker as an individual. And so like, what do I take from all of that kind of cocktail of like, you know, typically unuseful energy? Uh, well, I, I, I kind of came up with an approach and I developed it over years of like trying to f- refocus that, um, all of the, you know, if, if my brain is going to spend, uh, uh, all day, every day, asynchronously thinking of ways that things could go wrong. If I could just target it at something like, for example, giving a conference talk on how to build trust. Um, and I kind of corral it to say, like, I want to talk about trust in teams and trust in, um, uh, uh, companies and, and trust in our communities. Then it gives it a place to kind of go and generate those thousands of permutations of different ways that that talk could not go well. And I build out, you know, a mind map from all that. And I start to kind of just prune aggressively, like what are, what remains is the stuff that's actually might going to be helping people. And I take the social anxiety and, uh, or just kind of fear of, uh, I don't know, somebody standing up in the middle of a talk and telling me like, Oh no, that thing's wrong. And I pour all of that energy into, uh, preparation. I, I just practice. I, I fact check. I, I go through and I, I make sure that my rhetorical strategy is absolutely airtight so that I can be confident that like that negative fantasy isn't going to happen to me. And then I take the sort of just like just general energy of being nervous. And instead of say, like use that as a reason to not go on stage. I know that the only way I'm going to experience release from that is to turn it on the audience <laughs> and just like just unleash it uh, like an ion cannon of just all these vibes on this content that I produced. And, you know, in my head, the, everything I said just makes sense, <laughs> which is fortunately the only place that it needs to make sense. But it's it's humbling to know that it's really it's a viewed through this lens. It's kind of a it's a it's a it's a it's a productive coping strategy for some some stuff that is hard for me. Um, you know, like I'm in that, 
you could chart the trough of disillusionment because I'm like a week out from a talk and my slides aren't still done yet. And I'm like worried about the audience outcomes. Um, and, and the takeaway is really landing instead of it just looking like, Hey, here's the Justin Searle show. And you showing off all this stuff that he made. Right. So I'm like, I'm actually like really in a vulnerable state right now, but like, that's all kind of just part of the process. And so I pour a lot of myself into this stuff. Um, and, and my only advice coming out of this for anybody who's listening, uh, is that if you find yourself with energies or with uh, 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 patterns of, of thought or behavior that aren't useful in other contexts, they might be useful and they might actually resonate with people if, if you are able to crack the nut on how to be vulnerable with yourself about it and repurpose some of that um, uh, insight energy into, into an avenue that can be used for good. Uh, and so that's the way that I like to think about my approach. I so appreciate you sharing that because the way that you give a conference talk, it almost seems easy because you're so at ease and you're so well informed. But I think it's incredibly important that you point out that like every pause, every slide change, every nuance you're heavily practicing. And so it doesn't come easy. There's a lot of work that goes into these talks just to make them look easier. If that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, of course, like the the adrenaline crash afterwards where I'm just sort of like, you know, crying in the bathtub of a business hotel. Uh, uh, that, that also comes and I haven't solved that one either. Uh, but I, <laughs> I know to uninstall Twitter the, the minute that my talk's over. Okay. So we know that you're opinionated. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? I have been bullish on Ruby and Rails for a long time. Uh, you know, before we started recording, you mentioned that you really liked my 2016 talk that was like theoretically about RSpec, but was more a call to action that like, you know, there was a changing of the guard from in the ecosystem of any link programming language like there's always the early adopters who are there as sort of like a hacker mentality like let's make stuff work let's make weird stuff let's um uh expand the boundaries and eventually there is a maturation where now you know all these businesses are using ruby and rails on purpose and it's important to that like their concerns are different like they want to make it uh stable and and make things that are you know predictable like you know we saw tools like bundler emerge uh quite late you know relatively and that talk was an effort on my part to start to articulate like we need to be more mindful of like what moment do we live in as Rubyists? It is changing. That is okay. A lot of people at the time were moving to other languages, and that's because that's the era of language. You know, Steve Klabnik goes to Rust, and that makes perfect sense. Um, Matt Iametti goes to Go, and that makes perfect sense for for Matt. Um, but for us who are still in the room, we have to think about like what's the moment in time in the life cycle of Ruby and in, and and for Rails, and what 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 could be our piece that we could push it forward and so i you know i focus a lot on quality and stability and that's kind of where i i feel like the last five years was my chance to offer something productive personally but when you look at the future and you ask like what comes next i think that very few languages do a great job of um successfully migrating like the generational changeover, right? Like we don't write a lot of new stuff in Perl anymore, um, or not a lot of people do, where, where folks literally just age out. And I think that Ruby and Rails have a superpower in that like they are pretty straightforward. Uh, they're, they're, when they're hard to learn, it's, it's hard to learn because we haven't done a good enough job of, of teaching people. Uh, and so what I see about 
in the future is like if we can successfully make Ruby and Rails straightforward for the next kind of generation of developers to understand at a glance, like this is why this is better than just doing this in Node.js or or this is why um, having my, you know, data handled in in Ruby on this back end instead of like, you know, loading all of the complexity into like the front end of, of my application. Like we need to be able to, I think, um, add some sizzle back uh, to that. And, and that's going to take a combination of you know, improve tooling and thoughtfulness and and marketing that uh, we're starting to see some of like the I think the the nascent little like green shoots of that. Um, but it also is going to require a renewal of, of old standing tools that like might have creaky edges when you compare them to other ecosystems. And that was a big reason why I invested the time in writing Mocktail, because I think that like we need to continue to look over our shoulders at like what is working out for other communities. You know, you look at something like TypeScript, which has been extremely successful in sort of corralling some of the sharp edges in Node.js and in JavaScript generally. And uh, it makes me wonder whether or not the building blocks that were put in place with with type information contracts in Ruby 3 might lead to ultimately a similarly easy on ramp to to stricter typing in Ruby programs. And, you know, I, f- I find all that stuff really exciting because it's fundamentally it's inclusive it's it's how do we get more people in the room so that they can experience all of the joy that we've had with programming uh to build the next round of of cool things i am nodding so hard that is great advice so how can listeners follow you so uh, my wife was a teacher for a long time and she learned real fast uh that phonetically our last name searles is kind (laughs) of hard to figure out how to spell so uh what she would do is she would uh just go up to the classroom at the front and she would say she would write down uh, the word pearls, like the the gem that is found inside of oysters. <laughs> and so pearls and then she would just cross out the P and then write an S. So if you can do that, uh, then you can spell Searles. And if you can spell Searles, then you can find my handle on pretty much all of these services from, you know, Twitter, GitHub, Instagram. Uh, and if you want to learn anything about like our company, uh, uh, that's called Test Double and you know, thanks to us paying a squatter 10 years ago now, uh, 1300 bucks to, to get that domain name. We have testdouble.com. And it, and unlike 10 years ago, it actually like says a few things about like what our business does and how you can get in touch. <laughs> uh, so so I hope that, uh, you know, if you enjoyed this conversation, you'll follow up and reach out to either me or, or learn a little bit more about what we do. Or, you know, if nothing else, uh, pull down Mocktail and tell me what you think about it. Excellent. Well, Justin, it was so great having you on the show. And I want to personally thank you for all the contributions you've made to the community, both, you know, open source and all of your conference talks. And we'll definitely have you back on the show, probably post-launch. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.